One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the show that turns our guests into their own best storytellers with the help of just three songs that have become part of their foundations. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Bob Keeling. Bob is an award-winning broadcast journalist who spent most of his three-decade-long career at WESH-TV in Orlando. He's won four Emmys and an Edward R. Murrow Award. He's appeared on national programs like Dateline NBC, The Today Show, CBS This Morning, and has appeared as a guest on NPR, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, and C-SPAN. The author of six nonfiction books, Bob's research led to the establishment of the Jack Kerouac House in Orlando. It's a literary landmark in the National Register of Historic Places and Graham Cosmic Cowboy Parsons Dairy Down, a Florida heritage site honoring the pioneering country rock musician in his birthplace of Winter Haven. Bob comes our way via the time he spent on the other show I host, Gulf Coast Life, which brought us together to talk about his latest book called Good Day Sunshine State, How the Beatles Rocked Florida. Hey there, Bob. How are you on this Friday after morning? Morning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fantastic and and clearly ready for a holiday weekend. Yes, absolutely. So um, you've written two books on Tupperware. What's that all about? Well, um, it's an iconic company here in Central Florida, and it is an intrinsic part of our collective history. And the thing that amazed me was this amazing woman by the name of Brownie Wise, who came up with the home party system, who helped Earl Tupper bring his baby to the world. And I wondered why she wasn't better known. And then when I did the research, I found out why. And it was a very compelling story. Well, we'll leave that as a tease into the future. But until then, have you listened to any music so far this morning, Bob? I have to say no. Is that typical? Do you typically listen to music when you're waking up in the morning and doing stuff? No, no, I don't. I'm, I'm usually sort of working into uh, the workday, uh, getting caught up. I usually read a lot in the morning. Gotcha. No big deal. Uh, so where did you grow up and how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood? I, I grew up in Kansas City in a suburb over on the Kansas side. Big, big Royals fan, you know, to this day, a big Chiefs fan, Patrick Mahomes, you know, we, we spent many, many lean decades waiting, <laughs> waiting for this time to come along of the, of the Chiefs being uh two-time Super Bowl champions in the last four years. Uh, I, I, in, in terms of music, I had a fantastic childhood. I'm the youngest of six kids, and uh, I inherited a lot of great records. And back when I was going to concerts beginning in the late 70s and into the 80s, they were actually affordable. And uh, so it just it couldn't have been a better time. And, and as I was coming of age, I listened to a lot of music. What kind of music was your uh, like parents playing? You know, did you have siblings? What was going on around the house? Yeah, it, my my oldest sister, when she went away to college, I inherited all of her original vinyl records. So you're, the ones that stick out, obviously, all the original Beatles vinyl records, um, the Stones, Cat Stevens, the Guess Who, Hendrix. So while the other kids are listening to more uh, bubblegum stuff of the day, uh, I'm listening to records like Revolver and T for the Tillerman, and uh, it was a great education. If I asked you to try to dig back as deep as you can and find an early musical memory of some kind, what pops into your head? What pops into my head is um, in our old house on Mohawk Drive, And I couldn't have been more than about four years old. So we're talking late 60s. And my parents had one of these great hi-fi sets that was like, you know, the TV, the stereo. There's probably a little wet bar in there, too. You could store all of your records. I mean, the only thing they didn't have in it was a bunk to sleep in. You know, these things were huge. And I remember my brother and a couple of his friends uh, they were there, and I was, you know, the tag-along little brother, and they were playing Revolver. 
And that's probably my earliest musical memory. I mean, you're going back to maybe, maybe four years old. What's your dog's name? That's Oliver. He is a white lab and he will lick you to death. But if you come to the door, look out. He sounds positively fierce. Well, tell Oliver I said hi. Um, what kind of music were your parents listening to? And were they cool with like the Beatles and stuff that was coming through? You know, they, they would have, they would have, do we need to pause for a second? Yeah, we ought to. <laughs> Ollie, Ollie, come on. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> he's a good boy. He's actually he's faced down bears on this block before. I, I live near the state park in uh, in Longwood, which is northwest of Orlando. Right. And uh, you know we've had three labs, great dogs, you know, and we probably had four or five bear encounters on this block. Hmm. Okay, Mister. They're not going to have you as a guest on the show, so you can just stand <laughs> out, big boy. Yeah, I know. He's looking through the uh, opaque window, trying to figure out what's going on. Sorry about this. this oh, no. No, that's okay. I have a dog who would be doing the exact same thing, so I empathize with you entirely, and we are in no hurry. Okay. I think he's walking back now. Yes, job well done. House is secure, sir. Lay down. All right. We're good to go. Okay. So what kind of music were your parents listening to, and were they cool with, like, the Beatles stuff and things like that? Yeah, they were were cool with our musical choices, but I tell you, I, I don't remember them listening to a lot of music. With them, it was more of a social scene, um, you know, the, the Weekend Night Bridge Club, for instance. But the, there, was, um, there wasn't a lot of music playing with their generation, and isn't that interesting, you know, as we're talking about, late 60s, early 70s, who would it be? You know, you might think somebody like Sinatra or something like that. But I never remember my parents being a big musical influence, but having five older siblings provided plenty. Wow. Were you you at the bottom of the chain then with five? Indeed, I was the last of the the last of the uh, mold before it was broken. So your parents didn't really pay much attention to what you did. I think they were exhausted by the time I came <laughs> along. You know, as long as I wasn't getting into major trouble, you know, they were like, okay, that kid's good. What's his name again? Hmm. Uh, do you remember the first music you owned that was not something that you were handed down by a sibling, but something that you chose to either purchase or ask for as a gift? Yeah, there were a couple of them. Uh, one of the very earliest ones was I asked for the double album of the Beatles rock and roll music that came out in about, oh, I don't know, 74. Uh, I also remember uh, getting Wings Over America, the triple album, which was a really big deal. Uh, so those would be a couple of them. And, of course, related to the Beatles. What about the first time you saw music performed live that wasn't a choir or a church or something but would be considered a concert? Yeah, probably Frankie Valley at Worlds of Fun Amusement Park in North Kansas City. And I think uh, – Greece was the big song of the time, and uh, that was a big deal. Hmm. And the first stadium show would have been uh, REO Speedwagon back when they played rock and roll. You know, it, they were big in the Midwest long before High Infidelity came out, and they, you know, burst out worldwide with more sort of bubblegum kind of top 40 rock. They were the headliners. Also, Santana was there. Uh, the Little River Band, and Pat, uh, Orlando's own Pat Travers was an old man. Jesus. <laughs> Buddy, come on. <laughs> was, that sta- was that stadium concert Sorry. at uh, Royal Stadium? It was at Royal Stadium, and the really cool part that I remember is that as REO was getting ready to play, this was uh, September And all of a sudden, the clouds start rolling in. And I mean, it's pouring and it's nasty and there's lightning. And to those guys' credit, they came out and absolutely rocked as we're standing in probably three to six inches of water on the baseball field. And one thing that will never leave me, in fact, this could have been one of my three songs, was as I'm standing there and they are playing Riding the Storm Out to Natural Effects. 
it was it was a, a stirring image that I'll never forget. Wow. Um, before we get to your first song, I just have to tell you, I, I was born in Warrensburg, uh, Missouri, and my family's from Kansas City. Uh, my, my grandparents lived in Raytown on one side, and then my other grandparents lived um, sort of in the southeast corner um, on Sniabar, if you probably recognize that name. But uh, so I've got Kansas City roots and I've been to World's Fun. <laughs> so you know what I was talking about. That's great. That's Absolutely. Great. I mean, we you moved know. we moved down here when I was eight, so I don't have. But I've been back a ton over the years. But yeah, we're both Kansas City people. Yeah, I I, uh, I went to Rockhurst High School. Wow, that's where and, my sister um, went. We won our state football championship in 1981, and our quarterback was David Cohn who went on to be the Cy Young award-winning pitcher for the Yankees. And he was also a great football player. Wow. Huh. Okay. Well, let's do your first song now. Um, It's the Beatles song. Would you like to tell a story or would you like to listen to it or a bit of both? You know, whatever you'd like to do. I mean, I I, I will say what comes back to me, it's as much as a, of a visual memory as it is an audio because um, seeing the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night was such a profound experience. And you have to remember, this is long before MTV, if people even remember what that was, you know, the, the station that actually played videos back in the day. So to not only hear, but see the Beatles in this live setting and, and get to know them as actors, and they were very natural, they were very good. And then in the live portion, like when the, when they play Hard Day's Night, you see the reaction of the girls. Believe me, as a young Midwestern boy, that has quite an impact. Hmm. So do you want to listen to it? Yeah, let's listen. Okay. This is uh, Bob Keeling's first song here on Three Song Stories today. It's A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles from their 1964 album of the same name. Yeah, that, that brings back so many memories. And, and I actually hear that song now in a dual context. I, I still remember hearing it as a child. And then I, I also have it in, in the context now with, with the amount of, I've done a great deal of research on the Beatles, but let's talk about the first context. And, and that is as, as a child and seeing the Beatles in this film. And you remember it all sort of works up to this crescendo where they perform this song live. And it's all with these quick cuts and the girls screaming and uh, just the energy of it and the freshness that, that I would argue remains today. And, and of course, it's one of those wonderful Ringo malapropisms, you know, we, you know, ooh, it's, it's been a holiday's night, don't you know? And that's how they came up with the title for the song and the film. And for it, it, it in the adult context, you know, I, I, I just had this book published called Good Day Sunshine State about the Beatles' travels in Florida. And I think about the fact that, oh, yeah, when, when they wrote this song, they had been working like dogs. And to think that they could come up with this sort of creativity on the run, you know, the context of it is they decided they weren't going to tour the U.S. until they had a number one hit. And then they finally did at the end of 1963 with I Want to Hold Your Hand. So as they're in Paris doing a run of shows there and staying at the Hotel George V, they're writing songs that would end up being on this soundtrack, including Hard Day's Night, um, Can't Buy Me Love, If I Fell, things like that. And then they finally find out there that they're number one in the United States and they've reached this ginormous goal. And the great photographer, Harry Benson, who now lives in Florida, by the way, in West Palm Beach, takes these absolutely iconic photos of the Beatles celebrating in their bedroom, having a big pillow fight, celebrating the fact that they've reached this unbelievable goal of of the top of the charts in the United States. Brian Epstein was so happy that he actually put a chamber pot on his head. (laughs) And that's another famous photograph. But in that context, I just think about the fact that, you know, they came here to Florida to be live on the Ed Sullivan show in February. It was part of this initial visit to the United States where after so much toil, after, after touring, you know, these awful, bars and clubs in Hamburg as they were trying to get going. 
and finally getting a recording contract thanks to Brian Epstein's undying efforts. This really is the first crescendo for them. You know, Hard Day's Night, the soundtrack, comes out in the summer of 1964, and by then they have exploded all over America. And if you know anything about the Beatles, you know that in April of 64, they had the top five singles on the Billboard charts, which has never hap- which had never happened before. So it just brings a lot of memories back in terms of, uh, regardless of how hard these guys worked, they still just came up with this amazingly fresh, timeless music that resonates today. So, so I really remember that song on two paths as, as a young person getting into this group that, you know, today, half a century later, I still find so engaging and uh, I'll never tire of hearing that song. You know, and your younger self would have probably been delighted by the knowledge that someday in the future you would get to talk to a lot of the people who were around them during that time. You know, I mean, you really got to dig into some of the people who were right there and and your younger self probably would have just been like, wow, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, because at that time I was decidedly uncool. So, you know, there, there was hope for me in the future. But, oh, you're right. I mean, I, I was thrilled to get a chance. I did over 30 original uh, interviews for, for this book that, that just came out in the spring, Good Day Sunshine State, and and it was so wonderful, not only to talk to people who had significant interactions with the Beatles, but I also flash back to when I was lucky enough to get into the Hard Rock Vault, which is located here in Florida, and they have all of these wonderful collectibles, and there I am with this 1964 handwritten letter, four pages from Paul McCartney to the guy, the Sergeant Buddy Dresner, who was their bodyguard when they visited Miami Beach in February of 64 to be uh, on Sullivan down here. And yeah, it, it's been an amazing journey with this band. And I think also that it was a year ago this very weekend that Paul McCartney played Camping World Stadium up here. And I had a chance to have a really memorable encounter with him uh, that I write about in the book. And, and what it did was it just solidified in my mind that Beatlemania is still burning every bit as bright as it did almost, this is hard to believe, 60 years ago. Hmm. Well, we'll get more into some Beatles stories and your books a little later, but let's go back to when you weren't cool. Um, where did you fit into the <laughs> equation in high school? What were, what, what, were you, like, what were your interests? What was the music scene like? Paint a little picture of your high school years. High school was fantastic. Uh, 1980, I saw the Super Bowl of rock and roll with the original Journey at Arrowhead Stadium. The Doobie Brothers, Kenny Loggins. It, it, you don't ask me who I saw during that period. You ask me who I didn't see. Hmm. Uh, the Rolling Stones in 1981. The original Van Halen with Diamond David Lee Roth. The Eagles. Uh, my, my prog rock favorites, Rush and prog rock in America was Kansas, uh, Sticks. I, I had a great childhood in that sense that so many great acts came through the Midwest. And the best part was back then it was affordable. I can remember um, being taken aback by the high price of the Eagles when they came through on the long run tour in 1980. You know, the Stones were uh, $17.50 on the Tattoo You Tour in 81. And, uh, you know, now that's chump change. Now you've got to take out a mortgage, you know, to see some of these shows. And uh, I was very fortunate in that sense. Um, You know, you wound up to pursue journalism. Was that something that was in your perspective during those years or did that come later? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. In fact, I used to do goofy things with, you know, in in a cassette recorder and things like that. And I ended up being a broadcaster for over 32 years. And it it was a fantastic career. And I had a chance to come in close contact with a number of these artists. And uh, one, one memory I have was in Wichita, Kansas in about 1987. And I was a cameraman back then. And I had gotten a pass to see Boston, who really didn't tour very much. 
and uh, they were a great act. So I, I had my backstage pass, and they said, "Okay, you get to do two songs." You know, so I then the first one was "Rock and Roll Band," which is just a kick-ass song, and that was their opening tune. So I shot that, went back to the TV station put that on the news for the end of our show. And then I said, oh, the concert's not over. I'm just going to go back. So here I am. I take my backstage pass, and I'm literally standing right behind the curtain. When Boston finishes their encore, they walk back there, and here's this guy. They have no idea who it is, you know, <laughs> and I'm just, oh, wow, cool, you know. So that's, that's, a, great, uh, that's a great memory, too. Huh. Um, so if you were starting to get into journalism, journalism in high school, is that what you went to college to pursue? Like, was were you on a path to doing that somehow professionally in your head all along? Absolutely. Absolutely. I went to the William Allen White School of Journalism at the University of Kansas, and that just got my career going um, right out of the chute. And I've always been interested in, in words and pictures. I'm also a former professional photographer. I was a, in NPPA, the National Press Photographers Association. So, you know, the, the connection with music is just is, is pretty natural. And um, growing up, you know, as a kid from early on, I don't ever remember not listening to music pretty faithfully. And in those years, the 70s and the 80s especially, I mean, it was the peak period for arena rock and, you know, acts like, you know, the Stones and all of these great acts that um, sold tons of Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, sold tons of records. And I was right there with the Legions buying them. Hmm. Um, What was your first job out of college? Uh, You know, you just mentioned that the concert that you got to see, like, what was your first professional gig as a journalist? My first professional gig where it was like full-time paying the bills was I was a, what they call a one-man band, which is photographer and reporter with the ABC affiliate in Topeka, Kansas, that was brand new on the air. And, and the big hitter station at the time was the CBS station where I was lucky enough to get a paid internship the summer before. But they were starting a whole new newsroom with this ABC station. And the funny part is when you would look at the ratings, the CBS station where I had intern was just a blowtorch. Everybody was watching. And this little ABC station I'd gone to work for, you know, in the ratings, sometimes it would have an asterisk that meant, uh, yes, you're on the air, but no, nobody's watching. <laughs> well, you know, but it, say, was a, it was a great way to learn. They say dance like nobody's watching. You were journalizing. You, you, you were making journalism. Um, so when you say like one man band, does that mean you were lugging around a great big camera and a tripod and you'd go out and you'd set it up and you'd do a stand up or you'd do an interview and you were the whole thing? That exact that is exactly what it meant. And I think the totality of the equipment, which included a boat anchor camera and a very large tape deck that you would have to carry. It was all weighed almost as much as I did, but it was an exciting young profession to pursue back in the day, right out of college. And it was definitely what I was meant to do. And I can remember in Topeka, one of the big concert tours that came through was rat and poison. Wow. And it was the rat poison tour. And I don't think we'd heard of either one of them. And I was also lucky during those early days to meet Muhammad Ali in person and have this wonderful autograph with him. And uh, those are some special memories. Huh. And, you know, doing it all yourself then probably made you appreciate it more once you didn't have to do it all. Without a doubt, um, you, you have the empathy for the folks who some might say are at the lowest rung. I wouldn't because they're the ones bringing in your proprietary product, the words, the pictures, the video, uh, that was a great experience. And I rose all the way up to where I was doing, um, international reporting part-time for NBC. So I got to see that profession literally at every level. And it's, it's very exciting. And, and I enjoyed what I did, but once you get to a certain age, you're like, okay, it's kind of time to ramp it down a little bit, especially if you have kids, you know, you don't want to be a, uh, a, a passive spectator on and off to their lives because they grow up so fast as it is. Um, we'll get to your time in Orlando because you were there for a long time on the air, but let's do your second song first. So uh, how would you like to go with the Rolling Stones song? Well, you know, I talked a lot about 
the fact that, you know, I was a kid seeing concerts and believe me, the Stones were right there in the wheelhouse. And back then it wasn't like going on the computer and, you know, just getting your tickets from Ticketmaster or something. We literally, there was a ticket lottery for this live concert. And this was the first time the Stones had been in Kansas City for about a decade. So this was a really big deal. And of course it was 1981 and the Beatles had been broken up for over 10 years. So everybody's saying, oh, this may be the last chance to see the Stones way back <laughs> when, 40, 42 years ago. And uh, so when I heard they were coming, I uh, <clears throat> left school and I went out and got myself a money order made and sent it to this address, P.O. Box, whatever it was, to you know get into the ticket lottery and keep my fingers crossed. And sure enough, I was lucky enough to get tickets and lower level. I mean, really good seats. So December 1981, right about the same time David Cohn was winning the state football championship for us, I saw the Stones live at Kemper Arena in Kansas City. And when the lights went down, you heard the announcer in a very enthused voice saying, thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome, please, the Rolling Stones. And this song comes out and it was just pure ecstasy because it was like I, I had done the work to get there. And now here comes the payoff. Well, let's listen to it, imagining that. This is, uh, this is the recording that was recorded on that tour. Probably not that day, but you never know. Um, this is the Rolling Stones performing Under My Thumb live during their 1981 American tour. It was released on the album Still Life in 1982. This is Bob Keeling's second song today on Three Song Stories. This is Biography Through Music. Wow, does that bring back some good memories. I bet, And, and for yeah. contextual purposes, you have to remember... This is before MTV. This is before the Stones and all these, you know, great music heroes of ours were so ubiquitous. You know, they're all over the place now. I can see what Mick tweeted out last night, you know, wandering around or wherever he is. But back then, these guys were like gods, you know. And that's what made seeing them live, you know, so impactful. Because, you know, there was this air of mystery about them that's kind of gone today, because you have to be everywhere as a as a star, so I think that's what made it that much more um, exciting and getting that shot of adrenaline. And I'll tell you, the crowd in Kansas City where I saw them was about ten times louder than that uh, crowd you there in Hampton. But you know, anyway, that's a great memory. Do you think that the ubiquity of people's connections maybe sort of takes away some of the magic? I mean, I think the answer is Absolutely. yes. I mean, we can't go back and change it, but you know. There's no question. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 such a rush to see these folks in the flesh because, again, you didn't have the, the proliferation of the Internet. And, and these stars sort of banked on the fact that they had this air of mystery about them. So to see them live, and, and again, you didn't have access to live shows on YouTube where you could look and go, oh, yeah, ho-hum. This was happening in real time. And yes, I think it made it far more special um, because it was so rare and unique. And you knew that this was a, you know, capital M moment. Hmm. Did you ever see the Stones again in the intervening 42 years? <laughs> Indeed, I did. Uh, I've seen them four times total. 81, 89, 93, and 97. Twice in Kansas City, once in Gainesville, and then the last time uh, at uh, what is now Camping World Stadium in Orlando. And they were fantastic every time. You know, it might not be too late to see them again. <laughs> well, you never know. They may not be around forever, or maybe they will. You know, we do have to worry about what kind of a what kind of a society we're going to leave for our children and Keith Richards. So, you know. Yeah, well, maybe they'll be the first band that they, they, they uh, approve an AI version of themselves, and they'll literally tour forever. You just never know. And, and what are those things? Holograms? Yeah, yeah. Holograms and, and, you know, and artificial, uh, et cetera. They'll, they'll be the Stones. A hundred years from now, they'll still be the Stones. <laughs> oh, I've seen some stunning ones, too. Michael Jackson, Roy Orbison, Patsy Cline. Um, they, they're pretty amazing. Hmm. So how many, how many stops did you make um, before you wound up at WESH in uh, Orlando? Just a couple. Uh, Topeka, Kansas. Um, Wichita, Kansas, which was a very competitive, great market to learn in. And 
you know, one of the people that um, I ran around with a little bit who became kind of a legendary um, reporter was David Bloom, who went on to NBC. And I don't know if you recall, but he was the correspondent who who died during the Iraq invasion. Hmm. And at the time, he was the co-anchor <laughs> of NBC's Today Show. Um, and uh, we just passed what was it, the 20th anniversary of his death. And I always like to sort of pay tribute to him. He was the guy I looked up to. He was just, he was fearless and intrepid. And, you know, we also worked together during Hurricane Andrew, which was my first major assignment when I came down to WESH. Um, I came in July of 92. And of course, Hurricane Andrew was the month after. Wow. What was your first job there? I mean, like, what were you, were you just a, a reporter or what was it? What was your first position? Yeah, I was the night side reporter, which was a very high profile position. So you're running on all the big major news. And when it came time to go cover Andrew, I guess my sense of it was there really hadn't been any um, really devastating hurricanes. So there was kind of a blah sense about it. So they said, OK, we'll just send the new guy. And uh, I went down there, and boy, was that an education. That was a Category 3 slash 4 buzzsaw that went right through a sort of not super populated part of, I mean, it was Miami, but it was south of their homestead. And I still remember going in there for the first time, and it looked, you know, I'm a kid from the Midwest. It looked like the destruction a tornado might cause by about times 5 or 10. Um, And I'll certainly never forget that. I spent eight days down there, and... um, it was uh, just like Thunderdome. I mean, they were not ready. They were not prepared. And the desperation ratcheted up pretty quickly. Hmm. The storm that changed building codes in Florida. Is what I yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Were you, yeah. you, did you go down after the storm or were you there as the storm came through kind of hunkered down? I was hunkered down doing phone reports in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And that was uh, plenty close enough. And the, the, the thing that I remember were the images of what looked like sort of blue-green lightning, pop, 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 pop. And of course, it wasn't lightning. They were transformers that were popping in the distance. And you would see the flashes, and you would assume that was lightning, but that's not what it was. Hmm. Um, over your career there at WESH, what other roles did you hold? Uh, I I actually graduated from being a street reporter to going out and uh, covering NASA and the space program and the 2004 to 2011 uh, hurricanes for NBC News and NBC News Channel. And I would work for its uh, international affiliates all over the world. And I can remember one hurricane, which one was it? And I was down in Key West and it was raining so hard. I can remember trying to talk for some network in Australia. And every time I would try to say something, my mouth would fill up with water. And I would literally have to kind of try to spit it out as I'm, as I'm but I, I guess that would give you a pretty good sense of what the, what the conditions were like. But uh, yeah, those years, 2004 to 2005, when the peninsula was hit with a total of eight hurricanes, were the thing, you know, that'll always stick out with me. Absolutely. I was here at WGCU back then, and I actually lost my home to Hurricane Charlie. So those were, mm-hmm. those were yeah, wild. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Oh, that's okay. It, it um, turned out okay in the end, but it was, it was tough. You know, y- you'll understand this. I mean, you know, being a person who covers a storm while, while simultaneously being impacted by the storm is a, an interesting thing to deal with. Yeah, and in fact, um, I was asleep in Tampa. I was working for NBC News Channel because they thought Charlie was going to come ashore in the Bay Area. And when it didn't, I got to call at about 2 in the morning, and we you know, uh, went down 75 there, and we were one of the very first crews in there. And I'm trying to remember where we were at first, but you know, we set up shop, and there were all kinds of wild stories about the destruction and the devastation and you really try to stick to the facts when you're hearing all this other crazy stuff because uh you know people were scared enough and i just remember it was still dark outside and the building we were in front of had been completely toppled and i couldn't help but think wow what is the daylight going to reveal hmm. you know if you drove down in the dark you may not have seen this but i remember driving on 75 a couple days after the storm and the memory i'll never forget is just 
all the light poles were broken in half, just just miles oh, yeah. of light poles bent at the same kind of place, I guess, where the weak part was. And oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. And that 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 is a visceral memory after numerous hurricanes. Um, you know, uh, I tell you what, if you if you ever want to move past three songs and do three hurricanes, let me know. <laughs> we'll, we'll have some stories to talk. Absolutely. About. Um, so you got to see some concerts because of work. Did you ever get to interview you know rock rock and roll musicians? Did you ever get to talk to people, meet people who were the makers of the music? Mostly, uh, I got close to them. Um, by that time, a lot of them really weren't doing press conferences per se. Right. But I remember, boy, this was a tough concert getting to get to go see Guns N' Roses with a little opening act. You might've heard of Metallica. (laughs) And I, I remember being whisked around backstage in, in a golf cart and there is Axl Rose walking with this security guy that must have been 12 feet tall. I mean, he was enormous. And uh, just the energy in the stadium that day. And by the way, right about that same time, I also got to see Paul McCartney live there. But the anchor man at the time decided he would Bigfoot me and uh, go to Paul's interview rather than me. And I wasn't too happy about that. He got he bigfooted you. I like that. Is that an industry term? I'm not aware. Of. Indeed, it is. Indeed, it is. <laughs> uh, so, um, you so let's pivot back now before we get to your third song. Let's pivot back to some of your books. We have alluded to your Good Day Sunshine State book, which, by the way, listeners, if you go to wgcu.org and look there, I have a whole interview with Bob about it. Um, uh, any other anecdotes that you'd like to share from that book about the Beatles that stick out? Yeah, the one at uh, camping where, in fact, I, I was lucky enough. People say, Oh, did you interview the Beatles? And I said, I, I had really interesting encounters with both living Beatles with Ringo. It was at just out back of the Ryman auditorium in Nashville, which was wonderful. But the one that really sticks out is with Paul at the loading dock. And since it was a year ago, this Sunday, it seems appropriate to share the story that, and I have video of it too, that I show in my book talks and um, it just, it'll never, I'll never forget it because it was just hotter than hell. But nonetheless, there are several uh, people out there waiting to see Paul, a couple of women. One of them has an entire sleeve of beetle tattoos on her arm. The other one is hurriedly finishing a sign on a pillowcase that says, I missed my senior prom to see you. Hmm. And I thought, oh, that was great. And then she she let me know that that senior prom was in Mexico. Wow. And that she had flown up to see her dad, or with her dad to see Paul. So as we're all waiting in that god-awful blazing hot sun, here comes the line of cars, and it's obviously Paul. And in the one SUV he's in, the window comes down and he waves at me and I, Poor Paul, how are you? You know, and he gives me a nice thumbs up. And then he sees the women there and he sees the little girl with the sign and he stops and kind of points at her and then goes on in. And both of these women that I, I was telling you about were just in tears. The one with the sleeve tattoo, you know, was just beside herself with joy and the little girl who had the sign starts crying and it gave me a lump in my throat because I have a daughter who's about her age and what that did was it told me you know what Beatlemania is still burning bright almost 60 years later and isn't that an amazing thing and by the way Paul is still a magnificent report, um, uh, performer my god he was wonderful two and a half hours easily up on stage with no breaks Hmm. You also wrote about Elvis in Florida. What do you? What can you tell us about Elvis in Florida? What's the short version of that? Well, the short version is Florida was Elvis's breakout state. He played more live shows here in '56, which was the year that he was discovered, than anywhere else in America, and like more than Texas and Tennessee combined. And of course, uh, the shyster manager Colonel Tom Parker also rebuilt his life and his career in Florida. But I tell you, if he's a colonel, all of us here were uh, generals. So that's how I'd like you to address me from now as general. (laughs) It was just ridiculous what a scam artist he was. But, you know, he got Elvis on RCA and away he went. 
Um, and I'll tell you one other thing. Um, the song that changed Elvis's career, Heartbreak Hotel, was written and first recorded in a little house west of downtown Jacksonville that has absolutely no historic recognition whatsoever. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it was May Axton's house. You know, Hoyt Axton's mom uh, was Elvis's first PR gal, taking him through the state when he first came here as a warm-up act in 55. And he played uh, Fort Myers a couple of times, and um, she told him, she goes, you know what, I'm going to write your first million seller. And sure enough, she did. Wow. And she was the co-writer of Heartbreak Hotel. Huh. Um, we had um, um, uh, Craig Pittman on this show not too long ago, and in one of his books, he tells the story of uh, Colonel Parker, uh, who was he? I guess he had a pet cemetery scam going in Florida. Oh yeah, like oh yeah. He he. Well, what <laughs> happened was he was a soldier stationed at Fort Barrancas in the Panhandle way back. And as the story goes, the circus was coming through town, and Parker deserted. And finally comes back with his hat in his hand, um, gosh, weeks later. And he was held in solitary confinement. And if you know Fort Barrancas, it's this awful place uh, built into a hillside in the panhandle. So to make a long story short, after he gets out of solitary, he is just, he's not making any sense at all. He's babbling. They send him to Walter Reed Hospital. And, and he is officially ruled psychotic. And... This was before he ever became Elvis's manager. And they ruled him unfit to be in the military. And somehow he just drifted down to Florida and rebuilt his life, which included being the Hillsborough County dog catcher, started promoting shows, latched onto Elvis, buried his entire criminal past, and away he went. Um, you also wrote a book on Graham Parsons who, and I, I mostly, we need to get to your third song, but I mostly just want to get you to highlight, I knew the name Graham Parsons. I didn't know anything about him. I read the Wikipedia article and the way he died and what happened after he died is like one of the most rock and roll stories I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe I'd ever heard, never heard it before. Yeah. And the, and the one thing is, the more you get to know the story, at least from my point of view, the less I wanted to emphasize how he died. You know, it was a drug overdose and his idiot manager decides he's going to steal Graham's body and do a cremation out in the desert because apparently during some drunken conversation, that's what Graham said he wanted. And he tried to do this half-ass cremation that didn't work. And he, you know, leaves the body there in, in the coffin that was discovered by park rangers. And this guy in the ensuing decades has decided that this is the story to self-aggrandize himself. And, you know, it, 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 what's unfortunate is it overshadows Graham's legitimate musical legacy as a visionary uh, in country rock. You know, he was with the Birds in 1968 when they recorded the landmark record Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Then he went into the Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman, which was a forerunner band of the Eagles. And Bernie Ledden of Gainesville was also in that band. And then Graham went on his own in 72 and 73 and recorded two solo records with uh, an unknown girl singer by the name of Emmy Lou Harris. Hmm. So he's also credited with discovering her. And uh, Graham was from Polk County. He was born in Winter Haven, and his maternal grandfather had millions of dollars from the citrus industry. And Graham's story is like right out of a Faulkner novel. But what I wanted to do was concentrate on his musical legacy and not this tragic comic story of his death that has sort of overshadowed everything else that he'd done in his life and his career. And uh, now we have a historic landmark in Winter Haven, which is called Graham Parsons Dairy Down. It, it's a building that was his teen club where he played in 1964. And now we've had, you know, it's now a historic listening room and a Florida heritage site. And we've had Chris Hillman play there. And what a night that was. We had Rodney Crowell there last year. And to me, that's more of a fitting musical tribute to his legacy. So 
um, you know, that's the 92nd uh, primer on Graham Parsons. Well, I feel bad leaning into the, the fiery end because that was just what caught, my, that's what caught my eye. Does. But I'll have to read your book because I didn't really know anything about him. And it seems like he was a fascinating person that uh, laid some tracks for a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, unfortunately, and believe me, people like Roger McGuinn have told me this, who I was lucky enough to interview for the book, you know, the founder of The Birds, who actually lives here in Orlando. They, they said, you know, the drugs were just part of the culture at the time. And we didn't have the Betty Ford Clinic, and we didn't know how dangerous and addictive some of them were, and it laid waste to a lot of careers, and uh, Graham's was one of them. Huh. Um, okay, well, let's do your third song now. This is the R.E.M. song. How would you like to go with this one? Well, I had just moved. I'd relocated to Orlando, and uh, I was single. And R.E.M. had been like the soundtrack of my young adulthood, beginning in college, with songs like South Central Rain, when R.E.M. made their first nationwide televised appearance on The Letterman Show. So um, they were really on my radar after that. So I was just getting settled in my new hometown and I had my new REM record in 1992, which was the brilliant automatic for the people. And I put that on there and it was actually the last three songs that just blew me away. Man on the moon, night swimming and find the river. And after those three songs were done, I just sat there stunned. I mean, to me, that was REM at their absolute peak. I have some pretty strong memories of REM around that time too. They were they were something else. They still are, but man, back in that era, it was just oh, I can't I can't say enough. Um, you want well, to listen? And I, you know, you would asked about getting to meet the artists and everything, and I did get to hang out with with REM uh, when I was in college. You know, I worked in college radio, and they, this was when Reckoning came out in 1984, and they were playing. Um, it was a good size hall and I got backstage and I'm getting Michael's autograph and these two women, you know, are trying to hit on him and he's, he's really trying to be polite, you know, and then finally he looks at them and he's like in a very understated way, you know, I would really feel a lot more comfortable if you two would just leave. And you know, that was it. They, they kind (laughs) of, uh, they, they went off and, and left Michael alone to kind of, uh, you know, talk to some of the other people backstage, but that was a great, great experiencing experience seeing them as just before they hit really big in the mid and late eighties. Well, let's listen to this. I haven't. I feel like I need to listen to more REM. It's been too long, and I look forward to listening to this with you. This is uh, Bob Keeling's final song today on Three Song Stories. This is "Find the River" by REM from their nineteen ninety two album. Like he said, automatic for the people. When was the last time you listened to that song, you know, closely? It's, it's been a while, but not that long ago. And, and one of the things I want to point out is um, what a brilliant harmony singer bassist Mike Mills is. Um, Man on the Moon is another one where you, you really hear his wonderful vocals. And uh, I, I just feel so lucky uh, having R.E.M. be the soundtrack of, of my experience in college and beyond because they uh, they are brilliant and uh, uh there's just nobody like them is it raining there it sure is <laughs> okay i can hear it but it's not the end of the world i just like to point it out so our listeners don't wonder um you know i you mentioned college i went to went away to school in 1990 and that's uh when losing my religion was huge and i just have this concrete right. memory of i went to ucf actually in orlando for well yeah. for a semester yeah. in two weeks and um sitting in this little pizza place right next to the dorms, and they, that song was like almost on endless rotation, and just that whole era of R.E.M. goes takes me right back to that time in the world. It's just really something. Yeah, they, 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 you know, the vocals, uh, the songwriting, just everything about them is, is so unique, and, and I like them because they're pre-grunge, and I uh, wasn't a big fan of that era, but to each his own, and um, I'm glad I got the best of them in the 80s and early 90s. Absolutely. All right, um, we're going to head in for a landing here. Are you ready for a speed round, Bob Keeling? Yes, I am. Yes. Do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share? Bert or Uncle Bert? 
Bert. Is that your middle name, or were you big into Sesame Street? No, no Robert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, when was the last time you bought music that had physical form, like a CD or album? Years, unfortunately. Hmm. Do you do karaoke? Yes. Well, um, and, you know, just uh, some people have said not all that badly. Um, Elvis is a favorite. But, uh, you know, it turns the, the right circumstances. And, and th- there have to be several for it to be right. But um, there was a night with uh, my wife at two friends in Key West where I kind of took over the uh, karaoke stand, for better or worse. That was quite a night. <laughs> if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter to? I of the Tiger, Survivor. We'll go old school on that one. What would your championship wrestler name be? Uh, BK, the BK Broiler. <laughs> That's pretty good. That was another nickname in the news business. Um, some folks, BK and BK Broiler. I love it. Um, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that represented your essence, what would it contain? Wow. Uh, probably a Jack and Coke. You know, something pretty Americana that, uh, you know, a wide, a wide variety of people enjoy. Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, Mr. Daniels. If you had to guess, what would you say is the song that you've listened to the most times in your life? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, it would probably be something by the Beatles, R.E.M., or Elvis. Any guesses on which one? Was there ever a song that really stuck out to you? Well, i tell you another one. A couple of them were like Kansas and Rush during the, the prog rock era. But to, to try to figure out exactly which one, I, I don't think I can. I don't think there's one that is just head and shoulders above another. Um, I mean, uh, one of them I'm sure would be like Rush. Tom Sawyer was a big one that we jammed to a lot. Maybe one of the Rolling Stones songs. Um, from like Tattoo You, maybe Start Me Up, something like that. Something from R.E.M., you know, Fall On Me was a was a big song for us back in the day. Um, Radio Free Europe for Murmur was a big one. So those are, that's, that's kind of a smattering. Song you wish you could hear again for the first time. Wow, that's a great one. Um, let me think. If it was one I could... Um, I tell you what's a great song that I, it it was actually another live performance was it was REM doing their song imitation of life from top of the pops. To me, that was really their last great single 2001. And if you go play it, you can see them live on Letterman doing it or from top of the pops. And it just had that, you know, wonderful uh, freewheeling, you know, when REM would get out and have a little fun so, yeah, that would be one I'd love to hear for the first time again. Man on the Moon also from uh, Automatic for the People is great. Album you wish you could hear straight through for the first time again? Murmur. Murmur. R.E.M. 1983. Wow, that was an easy answer for you. Um, yeah, that's one of those you put on, and there are no bad songs. Any songs you'll avoid listening to, not necessarily because you don't like the song, but because you don't want to be reminded of what the song brings you to? Not so much that, but just because they were so overplayed. And I hate to say this because uh, I respect him greatly. That would be Bob Seger, old-time rock and roll. Oh, my God. Give it a rest. Yeah, that song has sold too many products over the years, I think. <laughs> and now, let me say also that his song Roll Me Away from the film Mask is one of my favorites of all time. And I didn't know this until I was actually lucky enough to and meet Rodney Crowell just last year. He wrote the song Shame on the Moon for Bob Seger. And uh, so that's pretty cool. Hmm. If you could broadcast a song magically into the head of everyone on the planet in one big collective moment, which song would it be? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's another tough one, you know. It needs to be something big and meaningful, you know. Maybe Pride in the Name of Love from U2. Hmm, that's a good one. You know, that's a that's a really meaningful and important song, but it's also a great rock song. Do you still listen to albums, or do you listen to music piecemeal these days? 
I listen to music piecemeal. Um, I, I'm, I'm one of those uh, kind of, I remember John Lennon talking about how he kind of liked to listen to just different, you know, songs, different singles. And I'll uh, go in like on YouTube and you can like put together a playlist of uh, different songs. But I always seem to come back to the 70s and 80s with a smattering of some of the later uh, decades. But that's that's right there in the pocket for me. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today? I think he'd done, yeah, not bad at all. You know, not bad at all. Um, it's funny how Florida seems to be kind of a punching bag in the public consciousness for different reasons. But I'll tell you this, I find it a source of constant wonder and amazement. There's always another really charming, cool town to visit. There is so much history and culture here. And after 30 plus years, you could not drag me out. Hmm. Um, all right. It's time for you to recommend three people that you'll share this with that you think we might be able to get on as guests. Okay. Number one is my buddy, Jock Bartley. Jock is one of the co-founders of the group Firefall. He also played uh, guitar with Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris. And I'm very proud to call Jock a friend. And the reason why I think he would be so interesting to have on is, number one, he grew up in Kansas also. Huge Beatles fan. But uh, one thing that I think is, is a great thing that they've done is they've got a record coming out in September called Friends and Family, where they're paying homage to the Firefalls family tree, which goes all the way back to the birds. And I've listened to some of it, and it's fantastic. So I hope Jock would play along, and maybe he'd pick some of the songs from that forthcoming record, because obviously they mean a lot to him and to them. Ah, that sounds fantastic. I hope he will. Definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll make the big pitch. All right. Number two? Number two is my buddy Gene Owen. Now, Gene is from Lakeland, and he's quite the bon vivant. Um, the man is a force of nature, and he and and was really the principal person who helped further uh, this uh, saving Graham Parsons Dairy down the um, historic landmark I was telling you about in downtown Winter Haven, and Gene has these wonderful memories from the earliest uh, times of country rock, and I think he would bring a great perspective not only about the country rock movement, but also the Florida artists, the many Florida artists who played a part uh, in country rock. I think you'd have a blast with Gene. Cool. Number three. Number three. Billy C. Wirtz. Billy is, um, he's another one of these um, jack of all trades. He is a broadcaster. He is a wonderful, accomplished musician who's out on the road all the time, but uh, he's from the Bay Area, Tampa Bay Area. And, and the thing that's great about Billy that I respect so much is he is a historian on the Chitlin circuit, huh. uh, especially through Florida. And he saw some of these artists in some of these really cool juke joints that dotted our state back in the day. And I, I don't think we pay enough uh, homage to the wonderful place that Florida has in this so-called Chitlin circuit that was traveled by some of the great African-American artists of our day. And I think Billy would add a lot as far as that goes. I would love to talk to him. We have a place here uh, in Fort Myers called um, McCollum Hall. That was a stop on the circuit. And there's been, uh, you know, decades of trying to get it re, you know, furbished, but uh, it's, it's finally getting there. So that would be cool. Oh, that is great news because that's that's one of my absolute passions. And, um, you know, I was so disappointed when the Deauville Hotel on South Beach was imploded last year because, to me, it was one of the top two or three Beatles landmarks in North America. But I still have a place in mind where maybe we could that we could landmark in Key West in memory of the Beatles historic travels through 1964 Florida. Hmm. All right. Well, General Keeling, you've done it. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to <laughs> like to leave us with? No, I just, I, I think um, what you all do is, is brilliant because you take this such a fresh approach to music and to history. And I appreciate everything, you know, that you put on social media as well. 
and your luck are, and your listeners are very lucky to have you down there. So cheers to you and thank you so much for having me. Oh, cheers to you too. And it's been nice talking to you again. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're going back two years to episode 172 guest. Jared the Intern Gonzalez. He was still just an intern at the time. Now he's a full-time production assistant here at the station. Jared's second song was Zelda's Lullaby from the video game The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It came out back in 1998. Jared stumbled across the world of Zelda around the time he was starting high school, and it caught his attention and lured him down a rabbit hole that seems pretty clear he'll be exploring for the rest of his life. And like I keep learning and and seeing and playing and and just i'm experiencing a lot in a relatively short time frame right okay now about this song this song is like probably the first song you hear when you plug in hyrule warriors and i'm like i was entranced by it the more zelda games i started playing the more i started hearing the more i started understanding why this game is as great as it is i love this series so much that if I have a daughter, the name Zelda is going to be in her name. I don't care if it's the first name or middle name or a second middle name. My wife and I <laughs> has got to come to like uh, an understanding here about this. Keep listening.